In July of 1976, everybody remembers back then, don't you? You're the, not too many of you born then. Uh, but Israeli commandos, they made a daring raid in an airport in Entebbe, Uganda. And in that heroic effort, 103 Jewish hostages were freed. And they were set free. And in less than 15 minutes, the soldiers had killed all seven of the kidnappers and set the captives free. However, as successful as the rescue was, there were still three of the Jewish captives that were killed in that exercise. Because as the commandos entered the terminal... They shouted in Hebrew, get down, get down and crawl. And they knew that the Jewish hostages understood the language and that their captors didn't. But two of the hostages hesitated and remained standing and they were killed along with the soldiers as they were shot. So all seven of those kidnappers were killed but then there was another guy who was actually on the ground at the time when the, so, the commandos entered, and he stood up at their command, and he was killed along with the rest of those uh, hostage takers and the other two hostages. See, Jesus Christ came to this earth to rescue those who were hostage to sin. And in Isaiah 35, it reads, Say to people who are frightened, be strong, don't be afraid. Look, your God will come and he will punish your enemies. He will make them pay for the wrongs they did, but he will save you. So his salvation is open to all people and all we have to do is obey his command, is listen to what he has to say and then respond. But being a Christian isn't it just trying to be a better person. It's actually giving our total allegiance to Jesus Christ in all things. Because he said, if anyone will obey me, he will obey my teaching. So if we love him, we will do that. We will obey him. So in order for us to receive his salvation, then we have to be obedient to his commands and to his warnings. Within 72 hours from where we are today in this scripture, Jesus is going to be crucified. So in Luke chapter 21, he gives a series of questions, basically warnings to his disciples in order to prepare them for the dangerous period that was ahead. And if we are going to receive his salvation to the fullest, it's important that we respond to these warnings as well. And the first one was, don't put your confidence in human institutions, but trust God. So we're now in verse 5 of Luke 21. Some people were talking about the temple and how it was decorated with beautiful stones and gifts offered to God. But Jesus said, as for these things you are looking at, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every stone will be thrown down. So these disciples, they were Galileans, and they weren't in Jerusalem that often, but when they were there, they were always amazed at the temple. Like this, actually, one of the early historians, Josephus, said that there were stones as big as 60 inches in diameter, so that would be a meter and a half. And every one of them was covered in gold overlay, or at least they were sparkling white. And what 
it was an impressive structure, and the disciples stood there in awe of it. I was part of a team of 10 people that went from here in the fall of 2019 to Krakow, Poland, and we were on a mission trip with Graceland Ministries. And while we were there, they took us to tour John Paul II Center. This was incredible. Over a billion dollars spent on this building to honor that man who was a pope, and I guess was the only pope from Poland. And I'm thinking of all the ways that money could have been saved. And then there was even a painting. You know that famous painting where Jesus is standing like this, and he says, let the sheep, let the children come to me? Well, they have a picture with Pope John Paul II's face superimposed on that body. And he says, let the sheep come to me. So it was incredible. But Jesus warned. He said, don't be that impressed by the look of the temple. Because one day, not one stone is going to be left on top of another. And historians relate that when the Romans basically burned the city in 70 AD, the gold melted down and ran into the cracks in the rocks. And then when the temple was in ashes, the looters came along and they pried those stones so that they could get at the gold in the cracks. So not one stone was left on another. Jesus said, don't put your trust in human institutions, no matter how magnificent they appear to be, they're destined to fall. So don't put your hope in the company that you work for. Don't put your hope in the stock market. Don't put it in your family. Don't even put it in your church, because these things can be shaken, and your confidence can be destroyed. There's only one institution worthy of your trust, and that is the kingdom of God. And there's only one leader worthy of your total allegiance, and that is Jesus Christ. So when others get panicky or angry, as many are right now with what's going on in our economy, and as I renovate my wife's sewing room and I pay three times the amount for everything that I do in that room, it does make us angry. But this is a great time for Christian people to be calm and to give the testimony that we see in Psalm chapter 62. I find rest in God. Only he gives me hope. He is my rock and my salvation. He is my defender. I will not be defeated. So our hope is built on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. Then the next warning he gives them is, don't be deceived by false prophets. You stay calm. The Bible talks about two kinds of false prophets regarding the second coming of Jesus. The first ones are the scoffers, and they say he's never coming back again. And they lull you into this false sense of security and disbelief that everything is just going to continue to go the way it has since the beginning of time. And then the second group, they are what we could call the sensationalists. They exploit the second coming, and they terrify believers by saying, this is going to happen tomorrow. And in every generation, we get those who claim to be the Christ, or those who claim to have insider information from God, and they know the exact date when Jesus is going to return for the second coming. But we read in the Bible 
but not even the Son of God knows the time or the date. So how can one of my fellow pastors know that? So Jesus said, look, there are going to be teachers who claim that they are the Christ and that the end is near. Don't follow them. Then in verse 9, he said, when you hear about wars and riots, don't be afraid, because these things must happen first, but the end will come later. And then he said to them, Nations will fight against other nations and kingdoms against other kingdoms. In various places, there will be great earthquakes, sicknesses, and a lack of food. Fearful events and great signs will come from heaven. So some students of the Bible prophecy, they've been keeping track of wars that have been going on and earthquakes and epidemics. And we definitely have something new going on now with the worldwide epidemic. And these students try to show how Jesus' return is more imminent because of the increased frequency of these events. But Jesus says these things in themselves aren't signs of his imminent return because they've been going on ever since the beginning of the world. So don't be led astray by these people. Be calm. Stay on guard. One day he is going to return and you will be ready. So somebody is going to get it right at some point. They're going to predict that he comes in two years' time, and it, it, it does happen. But when I was in high school, I could get by mostly on my natural intelligence. Then I didn't need to spend much time studying. And I did what too many people did. We would just cram for exams and hope that we did okay. And I was busy. I didn't have time. There was farm work. We had at least an hour's drive to and from school on a bus. And then we had other activities going on at church, and then we had sports that we were involved in. But one day I arrived at the school, and after the first class, I heard rumors that our math teacher had popped a quiz on everybody. So I had two classes to cram. And I'm admitting this, I stood at the, or sat at the back of the classroom and I'm there cramming, trying to get some math into me before that quiz. And then back in those days, the, the guidance counselor would meet with you to help you determine what career you should move into. Now I don't know if it's the same way in high school today, but this guy told me, you should be an accountant because your math marks are so good. Okay, and I tried that for a year and I realized cramming at the last minute doesn't work in university. So the next year I enrolled at Maritime Christian College over in Charlottetown and I got my act together and I studied ahead of time. So the exams, they weren't a big hassle for me and everything was going great until Halfway through my second year, I met my present wife, Pat, and my marks started to go down a little. But the joy factor in my life was going up, so I thought this is a good kind of, forgot the word in the first service, trade-off. But I managed to get myself under control and get back to my proper habits that next year. But the, the whole key is being ready in this. And I was so impressive with my study habits that I 
took a year at the University of Prince Edward Island. It was courses I needed for my Bachelor of Theology. And in English, I was answering all the questions. And our professor was constantly picking on islanders. And he goes, I was at the store the other day, and I heard these islanders talking, and their grammar was so horrible. But I, I was pondering all these things in my heart. And then I answered a question one day, and then I answered another question. He said, congratulations, you're batting a thousand. And I said, yeah, and I'm a dumb islander. And I, I, I was more bold back then, I guess. But if we're walking faithfully with Jesus Christ every day, and some sensationalist says, the Lord is coming back next week, you say, maybe yes, maybe not, but you don't panic because you're ready for him. That's the whole key. You're ready for him to come at any hour. And then he said, don't be intimidated by intense opposition. Actually, be bold. We're picking up in verse 12. But before all these things happen, people will arrest you and treat you cruelly. They will judge you in their synagogues and put you in jail and force you to stand before kings and governors because you follow me. So there has been religious persecution ever since Cain killed his brother Abel because Abel offered a sacrifice that was more acceptable than Cain's. And ever since that time, people have instinctively wanted to be free to do their own thing. And anyone that suggests that there is a God who is going to hold them accountable will be angrily opposed. In fact, Jesus said, all men will hate you because of me. So down through the years, Christians have been ridiculed as ignorant. They've been arrested and tortured. They've been burned at the stake. They've been thrown to wild animals in the Roman arenas. And even today, I was looking at the list of most dangerous countries in the world. And number one is Afghanistan, where there is an Islamic theocracy imposed by the Taliban. Extremely dangerous to be a Christian. North Korea is number two, and that's where Christians experience communist and post-communist oppression. But Nigeria is number seven on the list. And I now understand why so many of you are leaving that country because in northwest Nigeria, there's a constant threat of attack from the Boko Haram and the Islamic State West Africa province. There are militants and criminals who kidnap and murder with few consequences. Now, we haven't experienced this in Canada because we live in a culture that isn't antagonistic. And I want to say is maybe a little supportive to the Christian faith. And I say that because of my own experience. I, I have a good relationship with our local MLA, and she actually did a shout-out about me in the legislature one day. And she talked about what our church was doing in the way that we were reaching out to immigrants. So th there's still some respect there, but it's abnormal and it's changing. We've gone from a Christian culture to a post-Christian one, and before long, we're going to be an anti-Christian one. I read this account about a judge ordering a mother not to pray or engage in religious activities with her children. 
After she and her husband had been divorced, they have co-custody of the children, but they live with the father. But she has rights of all kinds. But after the divorce, she started attending a Baptist church. And the father objected to her taking the kids to church. And the kids said, well, we don't like going there anyway. So the judge decided that it wasn't in the best interest of the children to make them go and ordered the mother not to take them to church, to not even talk to them about religious matters when she was with them. So Bible-believing Christians and churches are under increased opposition. And some of you may be encountering more and more challenges about your religious values and your moral values, and you're facing all kinds of challenges against your beliefs. And it's going to intensify in the future. And that's exactly what Jesus predicted. But there is an assurance that God will actually give us the words when we need them. We're now in verse 13. But this will give you an opportunity to tell about me. Make up your minds not to worry ahead of time about what you will say. I will give you the wisdom to say things that none of your enemies will be able to stand against or prove wrong. Now verse 15 doesn't say that we shouldn't prepare because elsewhere in the Bible we're told how we should be ready to give the reason for the hope that we have, be able to tell other people why we believe in Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here is if you get into a situation where there's opposition, don't cower, get bolder, and I will be there. I will give you the words. Because verse 16 says, even your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will turn against you, and they will kill some of you. So it can get nasty if you're really serious about this stuff. And Jesus said that in some situations, families will be divided over him, and then in other situations, Christians could be put to get death for their faith. And we hear accounts of this too often. And then in 17, he said, all people will hate you, because you follow me. But none of these things can really harm you. By continuing to have faith, you will save your lives. Now, how can he on one hand say that, but then on another hand say, that I will protect you? How can he say, some of you will die and I will protect you? The meaning here is that if you stand firm for me, you will gain eternal life. You won't lose a thing. You will actually gain so that's why the early Christians were persecuted. And when they were persecuted, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy of suffering in the name of Jesus. And they prayed that they would be bolder in the future and that they wouldn't be intimidated by the opposition. And they wouldn't bail, but they would be bold. So that is the same challenge for us. It's to be bold. It's not to back off when there is opposition. Then he challenged them, don't be complacent. When you see the signs unfolding, take action. Now we're in verse 20. When you see armies all around Jerusalem, you will know it will soon be destroyed. At that time, the people in Judea should run away to the mountains. The people in Jerusalem must get out. And those who are near the city should not go in. 
So Jesus is obviously talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And he warns his followers, when you see those Roman armies coming into the city, then you get out of the city. And Eusebius, who was an early church historian, he said that many Christians remember Jesus' words. And when Titus's armies came into the city, they heeded the warning and they fled from the city. And many Christians saved their families because of this warning. In the next paragraph, Jesus gives us some signs about when the end is near. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On earth, nations will be afraid and confused because of the roar and fury of the sea. People will be so afraid they will faint wondering what is happening to the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So some think that this means the catastrophic events that we see taking place in nature, like global warming. That's what he's talking about. Others think it's figurative prophecy because Revelation 9 speaks about a star falling and, and they think that's not a literal star, but the fall of a world leader. And the sun, moon, and stars could refer to an upheaval of world leaders, a nation rising and falling, the stock market rising and falling, people being apprehensive. But look what Jesus says in verse 27. Then people will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to happen, look up and hold your heads high because the time when God will free you is near. So he's seeing what's going on. And he's saying, when you see that turmoil, when you see that upheaval, don't shake your head in dismay. Lift up your head and be excited because something exciting is about to happen. And Graham Lotz said, when it looks like things are falling apart, they're really falling into place. And these signs, even though they bring terror to lost people, but to those who trust in the Lord, they bring hope. Then Jesus told a parable to try and get his point across. He said, look at the fig tree and all the other trees. When their leaves appear, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, you will know that God's kingdom is near. I tell you the truth, all these things will happen while the sun, excuse me, while the people of this time are still living. Now, some people think that what Jesus said here was the fig tree was going to blossom in the spring. He's using a general uh, illustration. When you see the blossoms on the trees in the spring, you know summer is near. So when you see upheavals in nature, you can know my return is near. The fig tree could also, some people say, could be a symbol of the nation of Israel. And after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, Israel for 1900 years, the people were scattered. But on May 15, 1948, a phenomenal thing happened, and Israel was declared a nation once again. And everybody said that it wouldn't last. The odds against it were 100 to 1. But this interpretation says that the generation that witnessed the reemergence of the state of Israel would be the generation that sees the return of Christ. So if this is right, the average life expectancy in Canada is 82.81. 
So if that interpretation is true, then we've got to be very near to the return of Christ because that event was 76 years ago. Or maybe he's still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. See, sometimes you have sufficient time to mull over a decision and make it deliberately, but there are other warnings, and there are things that need to be listened to quickly or we're in trouble. If you are driving in your car and you hear an approaching siren from behind you, you signal and you get over to the right-hand side to allow that emergency vehicle to go. If you smell smoke, you get out of the building. You don't try to be a hero like my father. Whenever the fire trucks went by our farm, dad jumped in his truck and followed them. And while the firefighters were getting dressed in all their gear, Dad was up the ladder with the hose, spraying water, trying to put out the fire. He was rescuing animals out of the barn that was on fire. But when you smell smoke, you get out of the building. And if your very pregnant wife says, my water just broke, you don't hesitate. You get to the hospital quickly. And I thought, this is the fulfillment of my boyhood dream, to drive as fast as I can in my car with the four-way flashers on. But my wife squashed that. We want to have this child. And, and then in that same ministry, uh, there was this man, he was having a heart attack, and they called me, and an ambulance, it was going to take quite a while because the ambulance was 20 kilometers, actually 20 miles, so over 30 kilometers away. So I put him in my car, driving him to the hospital, and four-way flashers on and driving as fast as they can. And he goes, I want to get there alive. <laughs> okay, so we slowed back down. But there are times when we have to move quickly. And in the Old Testament account, when the angel told Lot, you flee Sodom quickly, don't delay, or you will get caught in the fallout. And it seems that the Lord may return soon. And this is the time to take action, the time to be prepared. I tell you, now is the time of the Lord's favor. Now is the day of salvation, is the way that Paul phrased that. And then the last warning he gave was, don't be trapped by this world's pleasures. Stay focused. So earth and sky will be destroyed, but the words I have spoken will never be destroyed. Be careful not to spend your time feasting, drinking, or worrying about worldly things. If you do, that day might come on you suddenly, like a trap on all people on earth. So be ready all the time. Pray that you will be strong enough to escape all these things. See, there are many people that are getting trapped in the pleasures of this world, and they think that these things are going to be so good. They have no sensitivity for the things of God, and they're so involved in the pleasures and excesses and sins of this world that they don't give any attention to the things of God at all. So we love the things of this world. We get weighted down by the pleasures and anxieties of life. But Jesus said, you know something? The things of this world are going to pass away. So don't let the attractions of this world become a fatal attraction to you. You stay alert. You watch. You pray. 
You conscientiously choose at times to attend church rather than other competing events. You choose to study something meaningful rather than looking at your iPhone. You choose to give money away generously instead of indulging yourself. You choose to spend time with your family instead of always doing things with your friends. The things of the Spirit are important. I'm going back in a couple of ways in this sermon, but the Beverly Hillbillies was one of the greatest comedies on TV between 1962 and 1971. And there were reruns for years after that. So go search them out if you want a good, strange laugh. Okay, don't search it out, my daughters tell me. But in the first episode, we see Jed Clampett and his family. They're living in this rustic shack uh, it's up in the hills in Kentucky somewhere, and he's out hunting, and he's shooting it for some food, and up, oh, I'm going to sing the song. But he discovered oil on his property, and he became a multimillionaire. And one of his friends asked him, Jed, when are you going to leave the farm? And Jed says, why should I leave? Look around you. Uh, I, I've got everything I need. And the guy said, yeah. Look around you. You're eight miles from your nearest neighbor. You have to carry your water in from outside and bathe with lye soap. Your bathroom's 50 meters behind the house. You look outside, and you've got all kinds of raccoons, possums, snakes, and varmints. And Jed looked up. He said, you're right. Why would a man want to leave all this? But he, he was satisfied with the terrible conditions of the farm because that was all he knew. Now, they did move to Beverly Hills. That's what the main part of the show was about. But the Lord says, don't get caught up in the pleasures of this world because the world's going to get worse. But I've got something so much better in store for you. So be ready and don't get trapped by this world. You're going to meet Jesus someday, and it's going to be in one of two ways. Either you're going to die before he returns, and you will meet him face to face, or you'll be alive when he returns, and you'll get to experience the, the second coming at that time. And since you don't know when either event will occur, it is wise to be focused and alert every day. I know most of you don't follow the sport of hockey, but, and you'll hear taunts about my favorite team, the Toronto Maple Leafs, how they haven't won the Stanley Cup championship since 1967. And then the new taunt is, for the last six years, they've had a good team, made the playoffs, and can't win a series. But they used to win. They won five times back in the 60s. And in 1951, they won the championship. And on April 21st of that year, 24-year-old Bill Barilko scored the Stanley Cup winning goal for the Maple Leafs. But in late August, he and a friend, a doctor by the name of Henry Hudson, went on a fishing trip to northern Ontario, and they flew in Hudson's plane. And they never returned. And their plane wasn't actually discovered for another 11 years, and they discovered the bodies at that time. So here was Barilko. He was on top of the world in Canada as far as interest in hockey went at that time. And then his life ended abruptly. 
We don't know when our life is going to end. So the best idea is to be prepared. You're trapped in sin. So Satan says to you, stand up, be proud, protect your rights. While Jesus commands you to stand down, humble yourself before me, and you will be saved. So if you've never done this before, we invite you to humbly accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to give your life to him, to repent of the sin in your life and be baptized into him. Talk to me about that. Talk to James Stevenson, our associate pastor, or any of our other leaders.